this week we're going to touch on the last two chapters and we're going to talk about putting an end to emptiness. Um, last week, let's see, for those of you who may not have been here, we'll try to catch you up as quickly as we can. The book of Ruth is situated chronologically between the book of Judges and the book of Samuel because it was written, the book says, or it was written, the setting is the time of the Judges before there were kings in Israel. So this is written during the era, or it the, takes place during the era of the Judges and it looks forward to the time uh, of Samuel when kings, the first king is anointed. So that's its placement. It reads like an extended parable. The characters all have symbolic names. And we're invited to um, try to see ourselves as the characters. We want to see ourselves as Ruth because she's so good and faithful and perfect. But really, we're probably encouraged to see ourselves as what most of humanity looks like, and that is Naomi, who's also a good person, but she has to overcome some obstacles of bitterness and blaming God for a few things. Um, also, so we find in the beginning of the story is that there's this family of four, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, Naomi, who's his wife, whose name means sweet or pleasant, and they have two sons, and they leave the town of Bethlehem for a town called Moab. Now, Bethlehem also means something. Bait is house. Lechem is bread. The house of bread has no bread. It's famine time. So there's no bread in the house of bread. They have to move to a town called, or an area called Moab to escape the famine. And what happens when they get to Moab, and by the way, Moab, if, if you were reading this uh, in a group, you probably, when the Moab was said, people would hiss because the Moabites were enemies of the Israelites. And the boys marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and all of the men die, which we kind of figure out because the son's name means weakness and disease. So we figure something bad is going to happen. All of the men die before any children can be born. And this is a real problem for the women. Because women during this era, outside of a husband or a son, um, have no economic security or means. So they're stuck with what are we going to do? And so Naomi, the, the mother-in-law, decides that they're going to return to Bethlehem because the famine is over and they hear that there's now bread in Bethlehem. But she gets, they start on the journey and she says, ah, you know what, you girls need to go back. You need to go back home to get some security there. Um, because in what she's referring to is what we studied last week is Leverite Law, Deuteronomy 25, when brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall take her in marriage and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, meaning they'll have a child together. And the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed the name of the deceased brother, meaning that the property rights will go of the first brother will come to that woman and her child so that she can be taken care of. So that his name may not be blotted out of Israel and also for security reasons. Well, Naomi says to these girls, 
you need to go back home because I got no more sons for you to marry. And I can't have any more sons. You know, even if I had one in my womb right now, would you wait for him to grow up? No. The be- you need to go home and find a husband. Go back to Moab. And so some themes running through this last week and this is redemption. Ga'al. These are some Hebrew words, that, and they all sound similar. And the one who brings about redemption, the redeemer, is a goel, so ga'al, goel. Also the theme of loyalty or kindness or faithfulness. Anytime you hear those words, it's one word in Hebrew called hesed. And it's typically used to describe God who is faithful. We sang, great is thy faithfulness, we never change. God is always described as being faithful and loyal and hesed, but we find this term a lot here as well. Turning and returning. They've turned toward Moab, they're returning to Bethlehem because they've become empty and they want fullness again. So Naomi says, girls, you need to go back home, and Orpah says, you know what, that sounds like a good plan to me. They all cry, hug each other, and Orpah, one daughter-in-law, heads back to Moab. But Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. This word also means cleave, devach, cleave. And it's the same words we hear in Genesis 2, a husband and wife. A husband leaves his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. So we have this marriage imagery in our mind as Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. But Naomi turns bitter. She blames God for what's happened in her life. Does that sound familiar? And she declares, I came, I left Bethlehem full, meaning full of life. She had sons, and I'm returning empty. I have nothing. And what we find then is Ruth, when they get back to Bethlehem, it's the harvest season. And Ruth goes in to harvest because... That is the welfare system of the day. She gleans whatever's left over in the fields at the end of the day. She can take home for food. She is out providing for her mother-in-law while her mother-in-law is bitter and angry, kind of like what God does for us, making provision for us even when we don't recognize God's favor in our lives or even what God does for Israel. And so there's a series of coincidences. It just so happens that Ruth ends up in a field of, the na- of a man named Boaz. And it just so happens that he shows up while she is there. And it just so happens that he is a male relative, a Goel, redeemer, of Naomi's. And these series of coincidences are meant to remind us that God is behind all of this. Even though God isn't mentioned a whole lot, God is sort of playing matchmaker. God is making sure God is faithful. God is taking care of things. And there's a series of blessings. And anytime we hear a blessing in Ruth, it's going to happen. You can, somebody says, bless you for this, you can guarantee that it's going to take place. So Ruth works in Boaz's field throughout the harvest season for about seven weeks. But at the beginning of the harvest season, he notices her and he kind of likes her and you can tell there's some chemistry there. And then we don't hear anything else. And at the end of the seven weeks, the women are wondering, chapter two ends, what is going to happen to us? What is going to happen? What are we going to do? Are we going to be living hand to mouth for the rest of our lives? 
So he hasn't made another move, and we wonder what's going to happen to Ruth and Naomi. And so this week, Naomi hatches a plan. And so before we get to the plan, let me tell you, so the hearers of chapter 3, there's some certain words that they would hear as it's being read, and they would go, aha. So I'm going to clue you in so that you will know too. The words uncovering and recovering are going to appear over and over again. And uh, what we find is that this chapter has some distinct scenes that involve word plays of, again, gala, which means uncover, and gaal, see how similar they are, which means recover or it could be redeem. That sounds a whole lot like goel, which is redeemer. So we got gala, gaal, goel, and if you were reading this, you could see what happens is you've got this, um, the narrator who's just real mischievous and has a penchant for puns, and he also uses double entendre with words and phrases that might be understood to either have a very innocent or normal meaning, or they could be kind of steamy and suggestive. And so again, some of these words we would recognize biblically and we would understand that they could have double entendre too, such as lie down and know. For instance, you could lie down to go to sleep or you could lie down with someone's wife. Or you could know someone, or you could know them in the biblical sense. And so that we would get those words. But there's some words that when it, the audience would have heard during that day that we would go, what's the deal about this? For instance, um, some words that to us would just seem odd at best. For instance, the word feet and the word threshing floor, which that doesn't sound like that should be any hot topic. But feet, of course, could refer to feet or legs or feet could also be a euphemism for the private parts of one's anatomy in the biblical times. Odd, isn't it? And the word threshing floor, of course, the threshing floor is a place where the husks of the, the grain and the chaff are crushed and separated. But also the threshing floor was a place associated with prostitution as we see in Hosea. The Lord says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, for you have played the whore, departing from your God. You have loved a prostitute's pet pay on all the threshing floors. So the threshing floor would have been a place where prostitutes might have hung around because that's the place where all the men were working at night. So, um, so when we hear that word, it could be an innocent thing or it could be kind of steamy. And so all of this wordplay invites the hearer to question the motives of the characters. Are they innocent? Are all their actions done out of hesed and loyalty and faithfulness? Or out of self-interest? Is there something else going on in the background? So here we start with Ruth 3. Naomi said to her, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, my daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now, here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you've been working. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. Put on your high heel sneakers, girlfriend. You're going out tonight, <laughs> right? But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet 
and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And I'm sure the hero is thinking, yep, I bet he will. <laughs> or is this could be something very innocent. So we'll see. And so she said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. So security. In, in the first chapter of Ruth, Naomi urges again uh, Ruth to return to her mother's house so that God might provide her with security, which means a second husband, something that Naomi can't provide for her. Well, now that we discover that Ruth lives with her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi's now feeling this need to, that perhaps maybe, since she's met Boaz, maybe she can do something to help provide for uh, Ruth's security and perhaps her own. Maybe she can help find her a husband. Let's talk about the winning, winnowing ritual. We learn here, for some reason, it's taken place at night, and it could either be because... Um, due to the work hours of the workers. Perhaps there was other agricultural work that needed to be done during the day and they would do the winnowing at night. Possibly it's because the wind conditions were better in late afternoon, early evening. The wind was, wouldn't be too strong or too soft. When you, when you took that crushed uh, wheat and barley and lift, threw it up in the air, then the wind would blow away the husks. Also, it would probably involve the community. All the workers, the men workers we've been reading about, would have joined together and helped with the winnowing. They would have worked at night. After it was over, they would have had a meal together, had a little bit of drink, and then they would probably, because it was late, stay on the threshing floor and sleep before getting up the next day and starting their work again. Wash and anoint yourself. Get all cleaned up. Bathing wasn't done very much back then, and so washing was a great ritual and it goes beyond fixing up and looking her best um, yeah she wants to look good because if you're thinking about getting a husband this might be a, a good way you wouldn't you want to be clean uh, but it could also indicate the end of a mourning period or a, a bride getting ready to be married uh, for instance in 2nd Samuel 12:20, David's son has died and at the end after his son has died, we read this of David. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. It ended his mourning. Also, then we see this imagery of a bride getting ready for her wedding, where God speaks to Israel. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and anointed you with oil I clothed you with embroidered cloth and with sandals and fine clothes and leather. So this is this ritual, bathing, anointing, and putting on something finery. So is Ruth going to present herself as to Boaz as I've ended my period of mourning and I'm ready if you would like. I'm ready to be married if you want to make a proposal. Here I am. Or is there something else going on? We don't know. What is Naomi suggesting that Ruth do or be? You know, how will Ruth respond? Uh, Ru this Ruth who argues against Naomi's very conventional earlier proposal, just go back home and find another husband. No, 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 no. I'm going to stay with you. What's she going to think about this? And, and is it what it, we don't know. So here's what we find out. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. So when Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came quietly 
and uncovered his feet and lay down. So no matter what the motive is, Ruth is told to avoid detection. Go at night. Don't let anybody, don't be known. Um, because a woman present in this public place at night with a man, uh, much less not lying next to a partially unclothed man, um, w could be seen as being scandalous at best, maybe. So it could be. It, but again, this could be very innocent. But our imaginations and the wording just leaves us to wonder. But So there's never any indication in this that there's any consummation of any kind of relationship here. And yet the choice of the words that the narrator uses um, keeps our imaginations very alive. And there's reason for this. It's like it's a page turner. We don't want to stop. Let's see what happens. And so we find that recovering. Now we've uncovered recovering and redeeming is now another theme that's going to happen on the threshing floor. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. <laughs> and he's probably thinking, did I have too much to drink last night? Where did this woman come from, and why is she here? And so he says, who are you? Because it's dark. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin, Goel. So Ruth doesn't do exactly what her mother-in-law says. The mother-in-law says, wait for him to tell you what to do. She doesn't wait. She doesn't wait for him to tell her what to do. She basically pops the question, you know, spread your cloak. It's, it's, this is what she's like asking him to do something here. Now, cloak could be a wedding imagery that we see in Ezekiel. Again, God speaking to Israel, I spread the edge of my cloak over you. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. So it's wedding imagery. So she's saying, marry me. So she's like pulls out the ring and says, you want to get married? Maybe. But it's also a word that we've seen before in Ruth. Cloak is the same word um, as wing. And this word was used by Boaz last week when he spoke of Ruth's hesed or kindness or loyalty. He says, um, may you have a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. May the Lord take care of you now that you're here in Bethlehem. So once again, like she did last week when he said that, she pretty much says, well then, Step up and why don't you do something about that? Once again, she invites Boaz to make good on this prayer that he made on her behalf and to provide her refuge under God's wings through his own action. That God is going to work redemptively through God's people. And so she's asking Boaz to do that. And so this proposal that she makes could be really scary. He could take, because Boaz, really, this is there at night. Nobody's around. He could take advantage of her. He could say, are you crazy? What are you doing here? You go back home. He could rebuff her. Or he could even expose what she's doing, whether, whether it seems innocent or not. He could publicly, he could shame her and say, look, this woman came in the middle of the night, and look what she's done. Um, and so here's what we hear. Here is Boaz's response. What's he going to do? He said, 
Ah, a blessing. So we know it's going to happen, right? May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty, your hestedness, is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, a, a term that, remember, Naomi uses to call her. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. Because I'm sure he senses this is a bold move for her. Could not go well. But he says, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. And this word worthy to describe her, she is a worthy woman. She's been faithful and loyal to her mother-in-law. And he says, Every, I've told everybody how worthy you are. This same word was used to describe Boaz because it said he was an upright man. They make a good pair, don't they? They're upright and worthy. So what is the, this last act of um, loyalty that you've shown that's, that's better than the first act of loyalty? Well, the last act is her proposing to him, actually. We're not really sure yet, but we'll figure it out. And Ruth, in her first act of hessedness to Naomi, her first act of loyalty was staying with her and gleaning for her when she was bitter and blaming God. She follows her to Bethlehem and makes sure that she's, Ruth takes care of her. So this was her first act of loyalty. The last one is proposing. Now, what could this mean? Why is the proposal greater? Well, he says it. He said, you could have married a younger man and not a kinsman like me and secured your very own future, but by seeking a life with Boaz, she um, instead her loyalty and her faithfulness in this act is greater because it secures Naomi's future because Boaz is the kinsman. So he says this act is even greater and he honors that. And in a way that Ruth never even imagines. We're going to see what happens next. But now, he's, so he's talking to her still. He says, but now, though it's true that I'm a near kinsman, I hate to tell you, there's another kinsman more closely related than I. We can hear the organ music now going on in the background. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and he says, remain this night. And in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, Good, let him do so. If he's not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I swear, as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. Remain this night. That word is the same as used earlier in lodge, where Ruth says, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. I swear this. Till death do us part. Again, it sounds like wedding vows. And so this word, remain this night, is used um, in Ruth's commitment. And it anticipates her lodging with Boaz into and after their marriage. And it's, uh, it remains that she will more solidly lodge with Naomi now through her marriage to one of Naomi's kinsmen. So it's this bond and this family is becoming stronger. So in Ruth's stay, this stay the night is prolonged possibly for various reasons. Some, you know, the, our imaginations could take us somewhere, but here's some others. Lie down until morning. Maybe uh, he doesn't want, he wants her to avoid danger. If she goes back out in the middle of the night, it is not a safe thing. Uh, perhaps he's worried about his reputation, her reputation, both of their reputations. 
And so, and maybe he just, just wants the pleasure of her nearness, knowing that tomorrow everything could change. This might be their last night together. Let's see what happens. So she lay at his feet until morning. But she got up before one person could recognize another, just shadowy figures. So, you know, nobody's going to be able For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor, you know. And then he said, bring the cloak that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. So she leaves in the first, second chapter, in the first chapter, she goes home with extra food. She's going home now with extra food and barley. Um, and then he went into the city, and she probably did too. They both went back. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, how did it go? <laughs> how did things go with you, my daughter? Really, the words here in Hebrew are the exact same ones that Boaz uses. She really says, who are you? Who are you? Are you Ruth the widow? Are you Ruth an engaged person? How did things go with you, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had said and done for her, saying, he gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Empty is how Naomi has been since her sons died. And she replied, this is Naomi, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out. For the man will not rest but he will settle the matter today. She goes, you watch my word. We're going to know by the end of the day how things are going to turn out. Six measures of barley. It could be a bride price or a marriage settlement, um, but it's probably assurance from, um, from Boaz to Naomi that he's going to take care of her and also assurance to um, Ruth that all is going to be well. Do not return empty-handed. Of course, Naomi returned to Bethlehem empty. Her emptiness, we hope, is about to end. And now we find out. Just a reminder, redemption from last week. Redemption is this process by which uh, people or property or prestige are restored to a family who has lost them either through poverty or violence or some other cause like death, like we've had here. Uh, or if somebody, for, we said last week, if someone through poverty had to sell themselves into slavery, then um, a family member could buy them out of slavery. They could redeem them. It also can refer to rescuing or saving or liberating people from danger or distress or an oppressive situation. And so Ruth tells Boaz, he's the redeemer. And in chapter 4, we hear for the first time that there's something specific that we didn't know about before that needs redemption. Here we go again with these words. No sooner, we, hear, we see God in the background. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. What a coincidence. So Boaz said, come over here, friend, and sit down. The Hebrew word here is really something like so-and-so. Hey, so-and-so. He's not even going to give him a name. Come sit down. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here, and they sat down. And then he said to the next of kin, so-and-so, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, 
by it, in the presence of those sitting here, those witnesses, and in the presence of the, el in the, presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me so that I may know, for there is no one prior to you to redeem it, nobody who has better rights than you, and I come after you. If you don't want it, it's my turn. So he said, I will redeem it. Uh-oh. No sooner. Of course, here's this coincidence. We see God's guiding hand in the background. The town gate in Bethlehem and, uh, and lots of other towns in, in that era included a courtyard lined with benches where many business transactions would be conducted, but also um, legal things as well. And so the disputes could be settled, and the, the townspeople and the elders would act as the witnesses or the jury. And so Boaz is essentially holding court, and he wants to make sure there's witnesses to what's going around because I think he has something up his sleeve. Naomi is selling the land, and we, we don't know if she's inherited this land. Um, she could, women could own and buy and sell land and property. Uh, Proverbs 31 lets us know that a woman considers a field and buys it, and with the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. But although there's no indication that a widow could inherit property, her sons could inherit property, her daughters could inherit property, we're not really sure. But in any case, it's evident that Naomi has some claim on this land of Elimelech's that the readers understand that we don't. Um, and so some possibilities are that she's inherited the land, but she can't afford to maintain it, so she needs someone to redeem it. Or that Elimelech, before they left Bethlehem during the famine, perhaps he sold the land rights of usage while he was gone to someone, kind of like the mineral rights. You can use it for a while. Um, but Naomi can't afford to buy it back. She needs a redeemer. Um, her poverty requires that intervention. Um, it could be that this, that this other kinsman may have been using the land, and now Boaz is saying, pay up. You, you need to be, do the right thing. So the property, you know, we don't want the property, they don't want the property to go away from family control. Then Boaz said, here's what he has up his sleeve, well, glad you're going to redeem the land, but let me let you know this. The day you acquire the land, the field from Naomi, you also are acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man. This changes everything so that, so that when she bears a son, they can maintain the dead man's name on the inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, ooh, oops, I can't redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You're also acquiring Ruth. Boaz indicates that this redeemer probably has a moral obligation. It's probably not a legal obligation because that's just for sons of widows. Probably has a moral obligation to produce an heir with Ruth. And he wants these witnesses around to say, yep. Or... When he says, you are also acquiring Ruth, some earlier Hebrew texts say, well, when you buy the land, I am acquiring Ruth. I'm going to marry Ruth, which means Boaz is planning to marry Ruth and raise a future son with her that would have a claim to the land. And he's going, oh, then that doesn't make it worth it if I'm going to lose it later. 
So what Boaz is doing is voluntarily taking on the obligations of the lever at marriage. He's not, he's not obligated to do it, but he's, he's going to do it. What a clever solution to everybody's problems. And so then the story goes on. It says, okay, now this was a custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, we've gone and we've sold a house, right? You're at the realtor's office. To confirm a transaction, one party took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So you're sitting down, you've signed the papers on the house, and you go, here's my shoe. And they go, oh, thank you. Now we know it. Now we know this is a binding contract. Um, so when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. And then Boaz said to all the elders and all the people, all the witnesses, today you are witnesses with my shoe in hand that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Those were their sons. I belong, I, everything that was in their name, I'm continuing. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife. Now, some people bristle at this whole idea that I've acquired. It sounds like they're trading Ruth for, as property. And when I marry her, this will maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. Today, you are witnesses. And then all of the people said, we are witnesses. So I have acquired. In redeeming the land, of course, Boaz acquires everything that had belonged to Elimelech and his sons. But... It can, uh, the word acquire can also mean to make one's own. I'm making this woman my own. I'm not, I'm not bartering like chattel. I'm going to marry this woman, and um, she's not a piece of property. I'm just doing this in front of witnesses. It's like in a court of law. Boaz declares he'd made, he has made not only the land, but also Ruth his own, and the legalities are conducted. They're concluded. It's all over. And then the witnesses offer a blessing. We love blessings in Ruth. All the witnesses stand around and they say, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. It means, I hope you have a lot of kids. May you produce children in Ephrathah, this is this portion, this part of Bethlehem, and bestow a name on Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, May your house be like the house of Perez. This part isn't gonna, doesn't sound real clear right now. Whom Tamar bore to Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Okay, so Rachel, may your house be like Rachel and Leah and the house of Jacob. Of course, Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob and they had between the two of them 12 sons that become uh, Jacob's house, his descendants, has many, many descendants who become the 12 tribes of Israel. May you be that fruitful, and may, your may you have this name in Bethlehem that's even greater than Jacob's. And Boaz's house, his descendants, are going to foreshadow even a greater house than that of Jacob's. 2 Samuel 7, 16-7. This is... Um, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, the prophet of King David. Go and tell my servant David, your house, your descendants, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
your throne shall be established forever. So, we're foreshadowing that this couple is going to produce some incredible house, maybe even a king. And the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, this story of Tamar and Judah bears a real striking resemblance to Naomi and Ruth's, Ruth's story. Lots of intrigue and funny stuff going on. You're going to have to read it in Genesis 38 because you wouldn't believe it. You just need to read it for yourself, but I'm going to give you the highlights. Judah, one of the 12, born to Jacob, uh, selects Tamar, who is probably a Gentile like Ruth, has, Ruth is, as a wife for his oldest of three sons. And guess what happens? He dies before having a child. And so because of Leverite law, um, Judah gi uh, gives Tamar, has his second son married Tamar to fulfill the Leverite law. He's going to do the right thing. But guess what happens? The second son dies before having a child. And Judah's thinking, maybe this woman is jinxed or something, so I fear that there's something wrong with her that my sons are dying though it wasn't, and so he sends Tamar away to her father's house rather than give his third son to her in marriage as the law required, so she's left without an heir, and she decides, maybe like Naomi, she's going to take matters into her own hands and seek an heir for her husband, and she gets all dressed up, but she gets dressed up like a prostitute instead, veils her face, and she stations herself on a road where she knows Judah's going to be passing by, and she seduces him. A child is conceived, and when Judah finds out who she really is and about this child, he declares, he says, before trying to have her killed, um, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb, and one of them is named Perez. Now, we find out through the generations that Perez's descendants end up marrying Rahab, who's a prostitute, who, if you remember in the story of Jericho, she takes matters in her own hands and secures uh, the town of Jericho for um, Joshua. So all of these women have some strange things in common. Tamar and Ruth and Rahab were all seen as outsiders and foreigners, all took matters into their own hands to bring about what was right. They were all instruments of God to do what was right. So Boaz takes Ruth, and she becomes his wife. And when they came together, what a surprise. The Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom, and she became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Boaz's house gives rise to the Davidic dynasty of kings and the one from which the Messiah is sought. So Ruth's son is Naomi's redeemer, not Boaz. 
Naomi's life and not just her land or her son's name is what have been redeemed. And it's no longer, her life is no longer empty and bitter, but once again, it is full and it is sweet. And then we hear this is a weird ending. Now, these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Amminadab. Say that five times. Amminadab of Nashlon, Nashlon of Salmon. Okay, so through, through Perez, then look here who comes next. Salmon of Boaz. Boaz comes through that house of Perez. Obed of Boaz of Obed, the new baby that's just been born. Obed is the father of Jesse and Jesse of David. I want you to look at another genealogy and compare the two. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, who we've heard about today. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by they're listing a woman here. This is never done in a genealogy. I want you to see how many women are here. By Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron. And it goes on about a million names. And then we find that Salmon is the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by, who's the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba, they all have something funny in common, don't they? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah, the Redeemer, right? These four women listed outside of Mary were all outside the patriarchal system. They were not related properly to a man as a wife or a daughter. They represent the faith, the faithfulness, the hesed by which the divine will be accomplished. These four women all have scandal or outside status. They're all instruments of God who play a role in moving God's plans and the messianic line forward. And so on the one hand, the genealogy of Ruth highlights the reward given Ruth for her faithfulness, for her hesed. She's essentially carrying out God's plan for the world through David's lineage. It's the faith of Ruth and Rahab and Tamar and not their pedigree that commends them to be mothers of kings. And on the other hand, it can be argued that the story of Ruth is really more about the faithfulness of God than of humankind. Because within the context of this entire canon of Scripture, it's a parable of the nature of God's love. Ruth persists in being faithful and offering her love and support to Naomi, even in her rejection and bitterness, just like God does for Israel and God does for us. And the lineage of the Messiah is full of tricksters <laughs> who have mixed motives or faithful ones. We don't know. And outsiders, God can use even the least likely agents to bring about redemption. And we need to ask ourselves every day, who is the Moabite in my midst who really could be used as a redemptor, who could redeem me? 
It's God's grace and not our own merit that brings forth the Redeemer of the world. And next week, we're going to talk about another story of salvation as we talk about Esther. And so let's stand and